Our scriptures are not infallible. Our God is. I mean, there are so many examples. And in case somebody hasn't told you about this, there's so many examples. Like, what happened to Judas? Did he hang himself or did he dive headfirst into a field? Two completely different accounts. And some people will come and say that you have to kind of stick them together like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, like he, 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 he fell out of the noose and flipped upside down and went headfirst into the field. Like, like, but there are other times where you don't have to do that because we are dealing with the rhetorical purposes of different authors who are sinful like us, recording the scriptures, but still also inspired by the spirit or the breath of God, using these, these stories for the purposes of calling us to righteousness. So... Don't throw out your faith when you don't know how Judas died. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. everyone. Well, I hope you had a good moment to get to know someone. If you're watching online, I hope that you got to text someone and tell them you love them and happy Sabbath. Well, friends, this evening we are going to be setting the tone for the rest of the night in setting a foundation of just some interesting questions and pondering with you and uh, our amazing panelists that are here tonight on the relevance of Scripture and its validity in the world today in the 21st century. And so we have some phenomenal guests with us tonight. Miguel, why don't you share with us who's here? I'm here. Yeah. You're right, you're right, you're right. Um, so uh, we have two friends uh, that are really, I think, well-equipped, Phil, to talk about this issue. To my right is Gustavo. Gustavo is a PhD student. He's finishing his dissertation. I know what that's like uh, in Old Testament from Boston College. So Gustavo, tell us a little bit about yourself. Nice. I, I hear, I hear uh, Massachusetts uh, voice or an accent in the background. Uh, folks, I'm, I'm, my name is Gustavo. I'm originally from Brazil. Recently, nice. Didn't we nice. tell them there are Brazilians we, we told here? You. Yeah. See, we told you we I were going to have a lot nice. of Brazilians. Yeah. So they stereotype, uh, remove carnival from my stereotype, but include soccer or football, the real football. Uh, today was quite distressing to see my son asking to play the American football with me. I was like, nah, that's not how we do these uh, things in the house here. So anyway, recently arrived in Redlands uh, two months ago. So enjoying the heat. Uh, I, I was getting ready for some snow in the winter, but I don't think it would be the case here. And I'm, of course, I was not expecting snow anyway. Uh, yeah, so it is a delight to be here uh, to see this uh, beautiful audience. And I hope uh, we have a good time. So. Me too, me too. So maybe Gustavo will be able to answer all of your questions on the Old Testament. 
That is a possibility. What I know you won't be able to answer is why a sport that where you throw and you catch with your hands is called football. I that is that is one of the greatest mysteries in the history of humankind. I, I agree. I but think you, uh, I think a greater mystery is how a sport emerged all the way down under that uses a football that tosses the ball parallel that you get into a scrimmage. What's it called? A rummage in the middle. Scrum. A scrum in the and then yeah. So we have an Aussie on our team tonight on the panel. We're so excited to have our colleague in ministry, Pastor Chris Stanley here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, brother. Hey, hey! thank you so much for letting me hang out with you all tonight. Uh, I, I spend time with the high school kids here. I work here as the high school pastor, and uh, it's good fun. And, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a joy to hang out with you all and, and colleagues like this where we can have a really interesting discussion about the beauty and the importance of scriptures. So, yeah. So, Chris, uh, talking a little bit about your context, and I think what allows you to have such a unique perspective is Australia is a post-Christian society. Um, and not only is Australia a post-Christian society, Australia is also the place where you studied, and you studied with some really interesting people. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Australia is it's definitely a country where the tide of Christianity has gone out. The numbers of people who ascribe to the Christian faith uh, are low, and uh, they're, they're not improving, in all honesty. Uh, but there is still faith there. There's still a church there, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I, I studied at Avondale College, which is the Adventist institution there as well, but then I also did post-grad work uh, with the Jesuits, actually, at Melbourne University, and that was uh, really interesting and enjoyable. Yeah. Is it true that uh, Russell Crowe, the gladiator, studied at Avondale? <laughs> So, Russell Crowe actually did film a promotional video oh, okay. for Avondale College, and you can okay. find it on the internet. Did he, does. he say, are you not entertained? Like yeah, no, he, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't, unfortunately. But yeah, he, did, he, did, he did help us out. The fact that many people didn't get the, the comment yeah, they haven't watched tells you a lot about the age that I'm addressing right now. So. No, Great no, movie. they're they're good. They're good Adventists. So <laughs> that's why they they don't go. They don't Thank go. You. They don't they don't entertain themselves with film. So Chris studied with the Jesuits, and remind me what what branch of Catholicism is Boston College? It's supposed to be a secret here. So the Jesuits, um, the Jesuits. Uh, so. I mean, it is a Jesuit institution founded in 1863, uh, but I, mean, I was not in the school of theology with the Jesuits, per se. Um, my teachers were theology uh, or theologians or biblical scholars, non-believers, atheists, and they don't practice a religion. They know the text really well. And to a certain extent, this is good because they are not bringing a bias when they are reading the text. And so I was very fortunate, and very fortunate, and still in touch with uh, my teachers, have to submit my, my writings to them. So it is nice when they show me that I'm bringing something different to the text. So it, where is this in the text? So they, they always ask me that question. So I said once about, oh, that part when Miriam put the baby in the, in the basket in the accessory, I said, doesn't mention her name. It's not Miriam. I mean, it's not, says the sister, the, the girl put him into the basket. Or the servant of Abraham in Genesis 24, we, we say it is, it is uh, Eliezer. The text doesn't say it is Eliezer. 
So always bringing me to the tech. So I appreciate the, the fact that I'm sitting with people who are not invested in the text to prove a point from a doctrinal perspective, if I know if that makes sense. Yeah. Tonight there's going to be a lot of questions that people are going to have based on the questions we've kind of come up with. And so we want to give you an opportunity as well to respond this evening, ask various questions, and ask ideas that you might have, even comment if you'd like. And hopefully if we have enough time, we'll get to some of those. And so behind me you'll see a QR code if you want to get your phones out um, and place those up there. And you can start getting some time to maybe think about something. So pull out your phone. You might not have one now, but you might have one a little bit later. Pull that out and uh, scan that QR code. I want to share one passage of Scripture with you. And, and that first comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And beginning in verse 14, I'm going to read through 16 to kind of build a little bit of a foundation for us on the idea of Scripture. And uh, we'll kind of launch in from there. So here reading in verse 14, Paul writes uh, a prison letter to his protege, Timothy. And he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We come to the text as believers understanding and trusting and holding in faith that God did breathe into the scriptures. Written over a period of some 1,500 years 40 different authors, men, women, paupers and princes, prophets, all had a hand in the authoring of Scripture itself. And yet there is one main, you could say, author of the Scriptures itself. And maybe that could be where we begin. How did Scripture even emerge? And when we as Seventh-day Adventists say, we believe in the authority of Scripture and its relevance in our lives... How do we understand this idea of interpretation and inspiration? That's, I think, a really good place to begin. So I think and we started rather facetiously saying that Gustavo and Chris studied at non-Adventist schools. Um, I am studying at a, at a Mennonite school. Phil, you're studying at a school with a Reformed tradition. Presbyterians as well. And so we have... We have people who approach the, te the same text and come up with varying ways of looking at, at the text. And I think that starts with how we view this, the text, as Phil said, in regards to inspiration. So let's start with you, Chris. When you hear the word inspiration as it, as it pertains to scripture, what, what does that mean to you? I think the scriptures are something that wouldn't have happened unless God's spirit was moving upon us. I think they are a document that reflects so many various things about the human experience, about history, but I also think that they have something that is above and beyond us. It is a document that calls us beyond anything that we ourselves could truly construct to 
uh, a level of ethical, moral righteousness is the word that the scriptures use there. And I think, I think that's where the inspiration comes in, in the fact that there is clearly God's spirit calling humanity through this document to a standard that is something that we, we wouldn't have come up with ourselves, I think. Gustavo, inspiration. I think uh, a nice way to to talk about the way God revealed himself in the in the Bible or how he communicated with people in the Bible and to us um, in a secondary moment is that God is speaking with a human accent. Mm. And and when he approaches humans to communicate a message to impart knowledge he's using the environment in which that person or that author, that scribe, that prophet or prophetess is, is um, part of to communicate that message. He's not removing said person from that environment. He's using their environment to communicate the message. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why you have so much uh, in the Bible or so many metaphors or, or expressions in the Bible that don't make sense in 2022, Southern California, or in the West in general, because it was written in a different environment in which God was approaching that community, that people. The challenge for me is not so much to understand inspiration, but how to make this bridge from this ancient document to us today. Wow. And and that is the hard part um, that I think we... We get lost in, in conversations and we try to argue with one another and apparently there is no solution. But there, there are truths there that were revealed in the past and it is our job today or our work today in our devotion, in our approach with scriptures, like a miner digging mm-hmm. and extracting that gem um, for our, I for think our it's journey. Really incredible that you brought up this idea that the text must be dug into. And I think one principle that we can apply in terms of this work of interpretation first would be, in my opinion, is to realize the scriptures were not written to us, though they are for us. Mm-hmm. They were written into a world some 3,500 years ago, uh, beginning with the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and then going on through history to a specific people in a specific context, as you bring out, Gustavo, that was for their world. So when we approach the text with a 21st century mind, friends, there is so much to be lost in translation because it wasn't written to us, though the text here in Timothy tells us that God breathed into it and it is still useful for you and me in this time, in this way. So a second thing that I would then add to this idea of of how we can interpret and and look into the inspiration is recognizing also when we are doing the work of interpretation, never read a verse, Mm -hmm. read a context, read a chapter before, a chapter after. I don't know how many of you ever seen the unicorn memes that are out there. In the King James Bible, somebody like unicorns, they're in the Bible? If you read the King James Bible, there is this translation of a wild goat that the, 
theologians and interpreters at that time did not know how to interpret in the word wild goat, and they used the word unicorn because it was a goat with a strong horn. And so some people who are unbelievers today, they're like reading the text, or maybe they're atheists or critical scholars, and they're like, unicorns. What in the world? I knew Christians were crazy. Now it just proves their, their book is a mythological work of literature. And so that's a, that's a second idea that I would add to it. And, and for you sometimes, you're probably sitting there saying, well, that's great from, from a cultural context that has moved beyond Christianity. That's great as you're preparing a dissertation. That's great when you're reading a sermon. But if you're not careful with the way you interpret scripture, you can get, with, you can get to some really toxic readings of scripture. So when I was young, I thought that uh, I used to like to read this text to my prospective girlfriends. Uh-oh. What are you going to read just, right now? Just, We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to start with 34. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. Oh, brother. Amen. They are not allowed to speak. I wasn't really into church, but I really like the next part. But the girls but, were swooning at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, check out this next part. But must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And shockingly, I was still single when... Uh... Did you read that to Linda before she said I No, do? because by Linda, by the time I met Linda, I had learned about contextualization. <laughs> so you have that and you're horrified, right? Some of you are horrified. Only the women said yes. So let me... Let me push you, uh, and, and let's go back to verse 26. So we're going to do this quick experiment in, in the importance of contextualization for our biblical interpretation. What then shall we say? And the word in Greek that is used is adelphoi, which means brethren. Uh, that's, uh, so some of your, the NIV translates that as brothers, probably a closer idea of what Paul has in mind as brethren. So what shall we say, brethren? In my Bible, it says, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Mm -hmm. in, the in the same chapter, in the same section, Paul starts with saying, everyone, both men and women, have something to contribute, whether it's a teaching or a hymn mm. or something important. Mm. And then he says, a few verses later, be quiet in church. So either Paul has become completely, completely schizophrenic or there's something else going on <laughs> there that, you have, to, that yeah. you have to look at. So let's continue our exercise, shall we? Come with me now to verse 36, what follows that section about women being quiet in church. It says, or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let it them acknowledge what I am writing. And this is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores them, they will be ignored. 
What is happening in the church of Corinth is this. There is a group in the Corinthian church that is very much opposed to women leadership within the church. And there are some New Testament scholars that say that what is going on is Paul is actually quoting their argument, women be silent in church. This is the group that doesn't want women speaking in church. And then Paul is going to respond to this specific situation by saying, are you, or did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it has reached? And so it's a very specific situation it's a very a specific theological conflict, and let's face it, it's a conflict of, of power that is going on. It's a power dynamic within the church, and Paul is dealing with it. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because throughout the Pauline epistles, you have this almost relentless call to include women within the leadership of the church. And so we need to ask this question of contextualization because if you don't, you can come up with some really toxic readings of scripture. Gustavo, I'm sure it happens in the Old Testament too. No, no, not really. I mean, <laughs> the most challenging one is the New Testament, of course. No, quite the opposite. Uh, I was just going to point out, for example, in the same text, that, oh, in the same book, in the same Bible, where you have a verse like that in 1 Corinthians 14, you have uh, people doing a renovation, a reform in the Temple of Jerusalem in the time of Josiah, finding a book, the book of the law, reading the book, and like, whoa, is this, is this reliable? Is this true? And they take the book to a woman, a prophetess, Huda, and she's the one who authenticates the book. Say, yeah, no, according to God, yeah, this is, this is, this is the book of the law. It is not a political manifesto that is going to centralize the cult in Jerusalem, a kind of political document. No, no, it is the word of God. So in the same book, the same Bible, you have a woman being called to be silenced in the church, uh, in reading, uh, read in isolation, that passage. And at the same time, you have uh, the authentication of a really important document uh, found in the, in the Temple of Jerusalem. Mm. So which, that, which perspective is the dominant one? Right. So, well, I think what the principle that we started with there was don't read a verse, read the context is so important. Miguel, that was brilliant. I love how you brought that out on this very issue that is so relevant in this, in this world that we're in right now. But now, what if we talk about inspiration just for a moment? As Seventh-day Adventists, we view this notion of inspiration in a way that maybe some of our evangelical brothers and sisters do not see. Uh, some church groups look at the scriptures as the literal word of God, meaning that word for word, was written and given by God to people to write down. Is that how we understand this idea that God breathed into the text? Well, I, th I think it's important to be accurate with Scripture. From the one that you began quoting with, the term there is God breathed the Scripture. God didn't directly author each word, but there's this idea that the Spirit, the the creative force of God which moves upon us has rendered something incredible. But that isn't done without the freedom and the participation of us. So the example we've just had, it's, like, it's an interesting one in the fact that we're trying to do a couple of things. We're trying to rehabilitate the text to a certain extent. We're trying to say, hey, listen, there's this text. It sounds really awful, but it's not quite that bad. And we're, we're, we're trying to do some 
interpretive work to try and bring that example of the Scripture into alignment with what we feel are the higher parts of Scripture or the more clear parts of Scripture, the teachings of Jesus, love one another. Where Paul says it better elsewise, you know, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. And yet we also have an author, Paul, who, let's be honest, he's not a 21st century feminist. He, he would not understand our discussions of women's ordination. He, he would be struggling with them. So as we read that text, it's important to say, listen, that was Paul. He was acting under the inspiration. He was being moved by the breath of God. We see him struggling with these ideas of women and gender and church, but we also see him moving towards a higher ideal, which is something I think we should do as we read Scripture as well. That, that's a really good observation because that, that's a problem that we see a lot in the Hebrew Bible, in the, wow. in the Old Testament. So after the famous Ten Commandments that many SDAs memorize when they are teenagers, <laughs> the first, the following chapter, Exodus 21, it is a law regarding slavery. So the first, after the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, the first law that God is giving to the Israelites, former slaves, is a law regarding slavery. And there is a lot of this component of a higher view. God is not revolutionizing the nation as, I mean, they were slaves for, for centuries. Everybody is practicing slavery. It's not an invention of the West. Uh, we have documentation about slaves from the 4th millennium BC in Mesopotamia. So it is, it is a, a very ancient practice. So instead of abolishing it completely, God is raising the status of the slave. So, for example, in Sumerian texts from ancient Mesopotamia, like southern Mesopotamia, what is today Iraq, you have uh, the word for, for, for slave in, in Sumerian, it is uh, arad. And when you want to say his or her slave, use uh, inanimate uh, pronoun, like the it you have in, in English, it's. So it is not a person. But when you go to the biblical text, that slave, male or female, is going to have a day off, Six days working, seventh is to rest. Uh, that slave is supposed to work only six years to pay debt. Uh, there's prohibition against trafficking humans. I mean, uh, that, that is a subject that touched my heart really, really well because Brazil was the major slave port in the world. So Rio de Janeiro, which is famous for its natural beauties, uh, you have the history of 2, 000, uh, 2 million slaves brought from, from Western Africa and South Africa, including my relatives. I found out through Ancestry.com that I have a lot of African DNA So because of the slave trade. So there is nothing like that in the Bible. A slave is a person, works for six years to pay a debt, and is supposed to have a day off during the week. And after six years of work, he gets a stimulus check. So Deuteronomy 15 lives with cattle, with sheep, and a, a way to restart life. So it is as far from 21st century. We all oppose that mentality here, of course. But at the same time, it is a higher position or a, a higher view of a human being than known before. And yet the conservative piece of me gets nervous with that because what we say 
and there's a very little conservative piece inside <laughs> me, but it's there. Uh, because what, we're, what it sounds like we're saying is, well, ultimately then, I decide in my 21st century higher ethical framework gets to decide what's valid, and that's not what either of you are saying. What both of you are saying is that within scripture, you have, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 5, which we're mentioning about the slave. And the Sabbath commandment there is clearly defined for Israel to remember their experience as, slave, as slaves and then to liberate and to free their slaves, to give them rest. Um, the New Testament, uh, Chris, you were mentioning this Jesus ethic. So it's not like we are ultimately deciding what parts of scripture are inspired and what parts of scripture aren't inspired. The only thing we're doing is calling scripture to testify against itself when scripture is not living up to the highest calling that scripture itself has. Mm. Wow, that's a powerful idea. Now, when you talk about scripture calling itself to that, we also look at it in such a way that we recognize there was a human mm -hmm. component to this. As Gustavo said, the scriptures in each one of its aspects, each one of its books has an accent, mm -hmm. you could say. Like mine. Like so, yours. Yeah. Some people say, I have one. Chris definitely has one. Miguel has one. <laughs> yeah. So when you look at the Bible, you can't call it just simply one book. It is not one book. It is actually a conglomeration of 66 books, each carrying a unique accent to them, inspired in a way that brings clarity of what God yearned for his people to see, but by human effort. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is a very challenging idea to some because they would say that every single word God told them to write. But we understand that God gave the ability through human effort to write down the passages of Scripture that would be both profitable for salvation and edifying in such a way that you would become the best version of yourself. So when we see minor incongruencies, which some point to the fact that, well, you can't trust the Bible anymore because look at this and look at this. If we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we talked about that. What happens? How do, you, how do you reconcile the two? Here's the creation story. And now all of a sudden you get into chapter 2 and you're like, wait, is this the same creation story? What's going on here? With the, what happened? So when we look at this, we have to see God spoke into people, but he did not dictate every single way in which the text would be written. But he guided them by the Holy Spirit's power. This idea of the Holy Spirit breathing on us to inspire his voice to still be dominant, yet with the utilization of a human being that is fallible mm -hmm. with an infallible God. Mm -hmm. Our scriptures are not infallible. Our God is. It's important to keep those. Can you say that again, just, just so that we have that on record? <laughs> like Our scriptures are not infallible. Our God is. Yeah, like, I mean, there are so many examples. And in case somebody hasn't told you about this, there's so many examples. Like, what happened to Judas? Did he hang himself or did he dive headfirst into a field? Two completely different accounts. And some people will come and say that you have to kind of stick them together like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, like, he, 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 he fell out of the noose and flipped upside down and went headfirst into the field. Like, like, 
But there are other times where you don't have to do that because we are dealing with the rhetorical purposes of different authors who are sinful like us, recording the scriptures, but still also inspired by the spirit or the breath of God, mm. using these, these stories for the purposes of calling us to righteousness. So don't throw out your faith when you don't know how Judas died. Before, before, before we, we move on from that, I love having a New Testamenter with us because you can explain this one to me, talking about inconsistencies. So you have the story of David uh, going to take a census of the people. And in the version, in, in one version, the King's version, it um, David is moved by, um, and, and in the other version, God moves David. And so which one was it? Was God the one that caused David to, to have the census and then said, well, you took a census, so now I'm going to kill a bunch of people? Or was it, or was it the enemy that, that prompted David to, to cause the census? Those two, sto- same story. Mm-hmm. Uh, King, the King's perspective and the Chronicles', Chronicles. Pr- perspective. Yeah. How do you, how do we how do you in your field deal yeah. with with these inconsistencies like the one uh, Chris mentioned yeah. or the one we ha- the ones we have in the Old Testament? It was a partnership between the two, right? <laughs> no, not quite. Uh, you know, it is it is. I think it is a powerful example here, and we can enter into the culture of the author to express the idea of uh, the, the, the culture in which the author is included. Um, he is, is helping form the idea. So there's a lot of changes in the way Judahites, and when I use Judahites, I'm referring to the people from the kingdom of Judah in which Jerusalem was the capital. When they went to exile in Babylon in the 6th century and spent a, whole, a lot of time there, seven, se- several decades, when they return, they return different. They, they return with different ideas uh, about the world, about God, about religion. And notice, how many times do you find Satan in the Old Testament? Only a few times. You have in Job, you have uh, mentioned like Satan. It is Job, it is Chronicles, that passage. You have Zechariah chapter 3, and without going about the date of Job and, and similar issues, but we certainly know that um, Chronicles and Zechariah, which mentioned Satan, were written after the exile. So the mentality of these Judeans was um, developing regarding spiritual topics. So the whole idea of angels that we have a lot in the New Testament is not that present in the Old Testament most of the time. And the word that we have as angel of the Lord, the expression angel of the Lord in in Hebrew is actually messenger of God. There's nothing about uh, um, uh, being with wings. So all these ideas are changing with time. They are learning more. They are... um, there is an element of maturation. Is maturation a word yeah, in English? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, sometimes I forget <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, so th- there is that element. And we don't like that because for us, many of us, we like to think of inspiration as a package from uh, Amazon ready for you, for you right now. Right. Uh, it is delivered at your door. Actually, it's, it is not like that. It is, it is a process. I love how. Oh, go ahead, Miguel. Just, just to say, because I, I want to make sure that we're making that connection for, for, for us here, because you might be saying, well, I don't have a PhD. What is this idea of maturation? 
So let's uh, let's do another. I never experiment. used that word before, actually. That's, that was first time I ever used, used. By the way, <laughs> I remember I remember taking 20th century U.S. history, and I never heard about the Tulsa massacre. Nobody taught me that. It wasn't it wasn't in any history book. It wasn't anywhere. It was lived and breathed by a community that actually experienced it. I hope my kids grow up in a world where the history and the traumatic events of the past impact the way we interpret the present and the future. And so hopefully when my two boys are in school, they do hear about the Tulsa massacre. They do hear about the way that some of the people in, in our country were was treated. Uh, because otherwise we remain blithely ignorant. So thank you for thank you for showing us that that reality does, does, didn't start in the 20th century with woke people like you. It started all the way back in in scripture. So I know Phil, you have some so comments we, for the audience. We have we have comments that have come up, and there's so many good ones. Um, and if you want to keep commenting, we'll put the QR code back up here. But this was really good. This came actually from one of our, uh, one of you out here, commenting from Ellen White, actually. And this was just one phrase that emerged that I, I remember reading so long ago. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. That's a really important idea to have a distinction of. And then this, this, uh, this was really good. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men and women that were inspired. Inspire, inspiration acts not on man's words or his expressions, but on man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. But the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus, the utterances of the man are the word of God. Ellen White, 1886, Manuscript 24. And I think that is a really important distinction to keep in mind. It is God and humanity interacting together to bring about something that is still truthful for us momentarily now. Now, friends, I have a, a question to ask of all three of you. Does the inspirational process end with the writers of Scripture? Or do we have the inspirational process continue, not just as God is inspiring people to write Scripture, but as you pick up the text and are reading it, is that inspirational process where the Spirit dwells in you part of your reading of, of Scripture as well? No, absolutely. The Scriptures are still before us and ahead of us. We as a church body are catching up and learning more and improving in our understanding of the scriptures. So the example you began with, you know, we have only recently come to the reading where we see how beautifully Jesus treats women. We have only recently come to that realization and that reading was ahead of us. In the 1700s, that was still coming. And the truth is, in Scripture, there is still truths ahead of us that we have not yet reached, but the Spirit is working with us in interpretation and experience as we catch up to the truth that Jesus has really clearly said, love for one another and love for God. We are still learning how to do that better. And so jump into the Scripture because there's more ahead of you. I, I understood the question, and I think it is a legitimate one. 
but the question that I ask myself is, am I a vessel that can be used by God wow. to, to do that with Scripture? Wow. And I many times I don't think that, uh, that I'm that, that vessel, uh, not because I'm watching too much soccer. or <laughs> is, It is simply because of who I am. Mm. And so if we are eager to go in that direction, we have to look at the cross every single time mm. and try to be um, good representatives of God on, mm. on this earth. I, I think adding, adding to that, the scriptures have been, as we... In, in academia would say have been canonized they they are sealed and it's done it's over you can't you can't add a 67th book to the bible right you can't you can't add another addition to it you can't add what does jesus say not a jot or a tittle will be added or taken away it, it is it is done right but the same inspiration that God gave to the writers of Scripture, God can and will, and as Adventists, we believe He does, do this same level of inspiration today. But I love how you said that. Am I ready to be that vessel? Or is my mind consumed with something else and elsewhere? Wow. One person commented and, and they said, or asked rather the question that's kind of on these lines, is the Bible updatable? By that, I mean Jesus simplified the Ten Commandments, as Chris, you said, love God, your neighbor as yourself, and told Peter there's no unclean animal. Does that mean the Bible is a breathable text? A breathable text. I think Chris gave a great answer to that question. It's, it's both ahead and behind us. I'm going to stay with that uh, this tonight. Yes, it is. If it's the living, breathing word of God, then it needs to grow and breathe and evolve. Mm. Shoot some rapid fire. Okay, for, let yes, me go through Phil. some more before you ask one of the other questions. So what is the Adventist stance on, on the Old and New Testament versions of God? They use this word, the Old Testament viewed God as, or, or some would say, he is a savage compared to the God of the New Testament as a God of love. I'll quote Randy Roberts on this because he's got an excellent illustration. And if he hasn't shared it with you, hopefully he will soon. He says, listen, when you take the book of scriptures, uh, when, you, when you read about the fall of man, we fell a long way back. And he says, imagine a football field, Okay. The ball went all the way back to the five-yard yard line. Fuel. <laughs> yard. The ball went all the way back to the five-yard line. Humanity <laughs> fell a very, very long way. And the intent of God was to move humanity further forward. So the goal line on the other end, which is love for God and love for one another as yourself. And so as God finds this broken human experience, God begins moving them down the field. And so as God enters into a violent, awful world of the time, you see God entering in in a way which can make these people take the next step forward. And you see the people of Israel go forward, and then eventually they, they fail it up, and they go back five yards, and then they go forward 20. And then eventually when Jesus hits the ground, you know, there's, there's, there's a 90-yard pass, you know, when it gets to the very end line. And, and heaven will be the completion of this. But there's this idea where the people of God they are being led just one step ahead 
by God's presence. So as we read the Old Testament, yeah, they were a violent, awful people. It was a violent, awful, disgusting place to live. <laughs> like it was, it was bad. It was really bad. And you see God entering into the systems of slavery and saying, listen, we're going to take one yard for it, okay? Okay, we're, we're going further. Eventually, we're going to get rid of this institution entirely. But right now, let's take a step forward. Let's get the ball one yard further down the line. So as you read the history of Scripture, uh, think of football. Mm, okay, okay. <laughs> Okay. Or rugby. Yeah, please rugby. <laughs> now, I, I'm just going to give one more, one, com, one more comment to that, and then there's been there's so many good questions here. Um, I, would, I would remember that Jesus in John chapter 1, it states that he was God and is God. And if we look at the life and character and ministry of Jesus, you see the God who was in the Old Testament as well. They are not two distinct persons but the same. You see a God who is compassionate and gracious and merciful and good. He is the same God who existed back in the First Testament. I was just going to say, if you read the prophets in the Old Testament, let's say Hosea, Amos, um, Micah, you are going to see so many beautiful metaphors to describe the, what God is doing to help the people see they are, they are doing wrong and they should look for, for the right. Like mm. hate good, uh, hate, hate evil, love good, uh, seek what is right. And, but you see God doing a lot of violent stuff. The same way you see Jesus doing it in, in the book of Revelation. Jesus has a white horse like Gandalf in the, in the, <laughs> in the end of the two towers. And his, his white horse, his white robe is, is red. And there's a reason for that. So he's killing a lot of people. So mm. it is, is this divine warrior. And, and bear in mind with me for a second, I would rather have a strong God fighting for his people who are in need than a weak one who will be silent and weak in, front, uh, in face of evil. Mm. So mm. That's, that's one of the ways Good. I cope with Good. that idea in, in, in the Bible. Good. And of course, there is a lot of rhetorical uses of uh, hyperbole especially in the Old Testament, there's all this language of killing everybody. You turn the next page, there's a bunch of people there. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. they didn't kill everybody. So there's a lot of hyperbole. Mm. So there are, there are a few more questions. I, I just want to hit a few more before we end this evening. Just maybe at least one response. I promise I didn't text this one, okay? I really wanted to talk about this, but I was, I was um, not able to get to this question. So I'm glad someone else asked it. How can you tell unbelievers, quote, proof... The Bible uh, is is legitimate when it's so quote old to them. What are some proofs that you can give to the unbelieving world? I would I would just give a couple, and then there's a few more questions I want to ask you guys. You know, you have the work of archaeology, which has been amazing in the 21st century, giving validity to the places and people that many looked back at as critical scholars who didn't believe in the actual inspiration as being the word of God and said, those places didn't exist. It's just a work of literature. These places are not real. And then you get, all of a sudden, the name of David appears on a, on a stone there that was describing a people who really did exist. Many didn't actually believe that the Israelites existed or that David was a king that was a real king in that world. And all of a sudden you get this archaeological find that gives people a sense of hope. Wait a second. 
When someone says, no, what I believe is mythological, that's not true. So I think archaeology is a beautiful way to look at that. But I think we also have to look at Scripture itself. John chapter 20 and verse 31 says that Scripture is given so that we might have faith. You can't necessarily look to the outside world and say, I need proof, I need proof, I need proof that God exists, proof that this is real. The Scripture was given so that you and I might have faith in a God who exists and is real. Phil, you, you, you're choosing the questions. Um, I feel now that, that we have to say something here. God doesn't need you to fight for him. God doesn't need you to go advocate for him as, as if you were a, law, a lawyer. God is God. Amen. The best proof you can give for your belief is just be as close to Jesus as you can be. And that is so countercultural to the milieu and the worldview, the cosmology that we have in this world, that people will say, why? And when you do that, uh, you, are, you are the best proof that we can give for the presence of a God. I don't remember who said that, but the person said there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Christian. And many people are going to read only the, uh, the, first, the, the fifth one. So they're not going to read the four Gospels that we heard. They're going to read your life, my life. As I mentioned at the beginning, in Australia, it's a very secular country, and uh, many people have lost faith in the church, and a lot of the fault was of the church. You know, there was awful sexual scandals and financial scandals, not the Adventist church, but in church at large. There were World War I and II, and nobody really had good answers for these things. Uh, the Adventist church in Australia is... Like, it's, it's, it's known, we're known for eating Weet-Bix and being healthy. <laughs> but the one church in Australia that still has the respect and the esteem of the Australian people is the Salvation Army. And it's the Salvation Army who simply says, we will care for the poor. And they have not suffered any attack. They only receive support and donation and assistance. And so they simply live their lives in accordance with the gospel. And when the Australian community see them, they go, yeah, that Jesus guy, yeah, those scriptures, yeah, they do something, and it results in people who selflessly serve. We believe in that. Mm, so. I love that. I love that. As, as we kind of finish this evening and uh, my brother comes up to share last song, one final kind of question for us tonight here is who, or rather I would say, we believe in a Jesus in his time, but not everyone had access during that season of life to scriptures themselves. And that's more of a new thing that people have now. Access to all of the scriptures. Is that a good thing? Has it really benefited us? Does that explain why there's so many different interpretations today? What would you say to that? Has it been a good thing that we have the scriptures now? I almost would look at it as, as a point to say we have access to so much today, so much more than any other time in the world's history. And I think that God needed this world and this 21st century community and generation to have access to his scriptures because it would be so much distraction for everything else. It would be blinded by the world that we're in. That's one, one thought I would have. I, I think that diversity... 
um, both scripturally, and Gustavo made a great point of illustrating how diverse scripture is. I think that diversity in any arena only enriches the conversation. Um, there's wonderful, wonderful commentary, uh, which I... It's just breathtaking that is coming from the experience of minorities and women that are reading this text and breathing new life into it. Uh, Hisako Kinokawa is a New Testament scholar that looks at the story of Jesus' interaction. Um, I think it's John chapter 10, if I'm not mistaken. The woman caught in adultery. Eight. Thank you. That's why we've got a biblical scholar here. <laughs> so Kinokawa looks at John chapter 8 and at that story and she's looking at it as a Korean that has lived through Japanese occupation and what she does with from the perspective of a woman who knows what it is like to breathe and live as a member of an occupied country and how much volition is taken from you because you're under the yoke of someone else. I could never have come up with that because I'm a Hispanic male. And so I think the beauty that we have access to it is not only are we digging for these jewels that you talked about, Gustavo, the plot of land we're digging has become so much broader because we have so many more voices that are now participating in the conversation. And speaking of voices, next weekend... We're going to add to the voices of how we view faith in a really unique way. We believe in the Bible as being the Word of God and its validity is still relevant to our lives. But there are others who have other scriptures and they also speak about faith as being meaningful and relevant. So next week we're going to actually have an, uh, a Muslim imam here. We're going to have a Jewish rabbi on stage. And we're going to have a discussion about the intertextuality of faith and religion in a pluralistic religious world. And how does that work? You know, many would say religion has been bad and all three of those, Christian, Jewish, and, and, uh, and Muslim, have been both violent to each other and imposed violence on one another and the world. And how do we interact with that? And so next weekend is gonna be a really interesting conversation, but we wanna give really props to our panelists. Even thank you so much for being here. Thank you to all of you. Thank you for your questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them, but I hope that you really take the time to dig deeper into the Word of God. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.